from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 17th. Today, why anti-abortion Republicans are changing tactics. Howard Stern reinvents himself and a new record in a fast-inflating art market. Pretty much what we've seen from the Republican Party ever since they gained a lot of control in the states in the 2010 election was a gradual kind of attempt to chip away at abortion regulations in states. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Fix. They've added restrictions. They've tried to make it more difficult for abortion providers to operate in their states, require more things like hospital admitting privileges. They've tried to shrink the window in which people can get abortions. It's been a much more incremental approach to trying to scale back the availability and the lawfulness of abortion in this country. But now, with new laws to dramatically limit access to abortions enacted in states like Alabama and Georgia, the legal efforts to dismantle Roe v. Wade have started to change. There have been many different attempts in conservative states that are run by Republicans over the years. They've gradually gotten slightly bolder over that time, but we also haven't seen anything nearly so bold as what we're seeing in these recent weeks from Georgia and Alabama. And that is all part of an attempt to get their case to the Supreme Court. Yes. I think what we're seeing in in Georgia and and especially in Alabama is not so much an effort to get these laws implemented in these states so much as an effort to go so far that the Supreme Court may have no choice but to take this up eventually. They're passing laws that are so completely anathema to what – is understood to be legal in this country and what we've seen in rulings like Roe v. Wade, like Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, and basically trying to force the issue now that they believe the Supreme Court could be amenable to overturning Roe. But if there have been various cases over the years related to abortion that have gotten to the Supreme Court and the court has decided on them, what is the argument for why these folks think that a new case should be taken up by the Supreme Court? On its surface, this is a numbers game. This is about Brett Kavanaugh having been confirmed to the Supreme Court last year and giving the conservative wing of the court a rather clear five to four majority. They believe that this is really their first window to be able to do this, given they knew the swing vote on the Supreme Court before was Anthony Kennedy, who hadn't been on their side in some of these cases. The argument that they're going to make though, has to be that there has been some kind of a change since these cases were decided in the past. The Casey case in 1992 made some changes to Roe v. Wade, but also upheld the right to an abortion in America. So Republicans and these anti-abortion activists need to argue that there has been some kind of a change since then that forces them to in some way reevaluate these past decisions and overturn these precedents, which is something the Supreme Court is reluctant to do. And what could they argue has changed? The argument is going to be around the science. They're going to say that the science has given us more information about when an embryo becomes essentially a person. They are going to say, now we know more about it, and so we need to revisit these decisions that the Supreme Court made before, which were based on less evidence than we have now. That's the argument that they're going to make, that there is some kind of a fundamental change that warrants revisiting these cases. 
So the Supreme Court will have to decide whether or not they want to take this up in the next year. What are the reasons why they might? The reasons why they might could simply be a matter of the numbers game that we talked about. The fact that there are simply more justices who are amenable to revisiting that decision. Brett Kavanaugh's past comments about Roe v. Wade were a big part of his confirmation hearings. But this is something that requires not a majority of the Supreme Court to take up. It requires four justices on the Supreme Court to take up. So if we assume that the most conservative members like Thomas Alito and Gorsuch would agree to take this up. That means we basically need either John Roberts, the chief justice, who is a Republican appointee, or Brett Kavanaugh, the newest Republican appointee, to provide that fourth vote to take up these cases. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will. I think even if you are one of these justices who might want to see Roe overturned, if you don't think that you necessarily have the votes right now, you don't want to bring that up because you're risking creating a new precedent, in essence, that would further solidify the right to an abortion in the United States. So I don't think it's a given that even if we have a Justice Kavanaugh or even a Chief Justice Roberts want to overturn Roe, they may not see this as the time to do it necessarily. What are other reasons why the court might not decide to take this up now? A big reason why they might not want to do it right now is because they decide that it's simply not the time. The Lower courts are in all likelihood going to strike down these laws or delay them because they are so patently against the Supreme Court precedent in these cases. So the Supreme Court doesn't need to do anything. They can just say, we're going to let these lower courts rule and we're going to let that stand. We don't need to weigh in on anything in these cases because these cases were pretty clear. The other thing that I think comes into play here and, and you know, of course, our legal system is not supposed to be about public opinion. But to some degree, that does play into decisions when it comes to throwing something that is going to overturn decades of precedent. You have to be prepared for what is going to result from that. And if you're a Supreme Court justice deciding whether to make such a groundbreaking decision to overturn all that precedent, you have to consider how that's going to be viewed in society, whether society's ready for such a massive change to take place. And so, you know, I think that has to be something that Chief Justice Roberts and all these other justices would need to consider in making this decision. Because there have been so many criticisms in recent years that the court has gotten too political and that a decision like this could be the most political decision of all and incredibly divisive in the country. Yeah, and it's also, by the way, uh, something that would fly in the face of public opinion. There is much support in polling in recent years for some of these more modest additional restrictions on abortion. When Republicans passed their 2013 bill that would have adjusted the window for abortions from 24 weeks, which is essentially what Roe v. Wade provided for, uh, to shrink that to 20 weeks, people were supportive of that. They have also supported waiting periods. They have supported requiring doctors to inform women about alternatives to abortion. But outlawing abortion is not something that is popular in this country. Even people who identify as pro-life generally believe in exceptions for things like rape and incest. If you look at polling, only about 20 to 25 percent of the country say that they oppose abortion in all cases. Uh, so even many people who identify as pro-life would not necessarily be behind a bill as restrictive as the one we're seeing in Alabama. And we're seeing that, by the way, in many of the comments from Republican lawmakers. I believe the most precious gift God gives us is life. 
and I defend my pro-life position for my whole political career. But in my whole political career, I also believed in rape, incest, or life of the mother. There was exceptions. That's exactly what Republicans have <laughs> voted on in this House. That's what our platform says. Even from televangelist Pat Robertson, who called this bill extreme. I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view <laughs> is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. The Supreme Court taking a stand like this would fly in the face of what much of the country believes in at this point. So that it has to be in the back of their minds while they're deciding what to do on this. These are human beings, too. I mean, they have to consider the legitimacy of the court, how much change the country is ready for at this point. And even if these justices are really thinking in the back of their minds, I want to overturn Roe v. Wade at some point, uh, even if that is their strategic goal in the end. Doing it at this point may not be the most fruitful course if you want to get rid of abortion in the United States. So just gaming this out. If Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, what would that mean? Like, would that make abortion illegal across the country? What it would practically do is it would not make this a guaranteed right across the country. It would essentially send this issue to the states. And so we see Republicans making a federalist argument for this, that it's basically just something that we should allow the states to decide. At the same time, if you are somebody who supports abortion rights, you know that there are right away going to be a dozen, maybe 20, maybe 25 states who have Republican majorities and Republican governors who would probably at least scale back rights to abortion, if not eliminate them in their states. So the practical impact of this would not be to prohibit abortions across the country, but it would happen in much of the country almost instantaneously. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Fix. On Friday afternoon, Missouri's state legislature became the latest to pass strict abortion legislation. The bill would ban abortions after eight weeks of pregnancy. Now it goes to Governor Mike Parson, a Republican who has vowed to make Missouri, quote, one of the strongest pro-life states in the country. I did this story on Howard Stern, and I find, I, I mean, what do you think of him, Martine? Honestly, I... I can hear it already. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Howard Stern Radio Show! Actually, I have like a very vivid memory. I was a kid watching TV alone, I would assume. And I was like changing the channels, and then... I, like, came across the Howard Stern Show. And now, the man of the hour, the king of all media, Howard Stern! I I just remember listening to them talking about women in particular. It made me feel so icky and also so angry. What's underneath your pants? Um, I have a lace thong. Okay, I'd like your pants off. Oh, my God. In my recollection of this, I feel like there might have been, like, a a naked woman or a porn star or something in there with them. I'm not really quite sure. She was out there. She was wearing an overcoat. Yeah. You know? So I I thought, you know, I said, 
She's not I, that good. She's, I said she's pretty decent, but, you know, I didn't know that she was great. They were, like, talking about her and her body, and I just, from, like, the small glimpse of it that I had, I just remember that they were there, like, leering at this at this woman and the words that they were using and the, the way that they were making jokes about stuff. And it just, and it really turned me off from the time that I was a kid. And I feel like I felt that way about Howard Stern ever since. There's no question that the Howard Stern you listen to today is completely different from the guy who got famous on regular radio. Jeff Edgers is a reporter covering arts and culture for The Post. And he just finished profiling Howard Stern, the radio host slash shock jock. Stern had a nationally syndicated radio show that also aired on cable TV. And in the show, he'd talk about sex and prostitutes, and he'd make fun of pretty much everyone, including the guests sitting in his studio. No one was safe from Howard Stern, and he got huge audiences for it. But over the last decade or so, Stern has been going through this kind of public evolution, becoming a totally different kind of interviewer and radio personality. And now he's released a new book called Howard Stern Comes Again. It includes annotated interviews with tons of celebrities. And many of those celebrities say that they never would have considered going on the Howard Stern show back in the old days. Here's the problem. And, I, and I'm sure that this, and maybe this is a complex answer, so if I get boring, tell me. But I've thought this through a lot. I can't go back and listen to really old radio shows. It's not who, I do radio differently now than I did then. I, you know, it's like, have you ever tried to go back and look at your old photographs or your old, old anything, articles maybe you wrote, and you say, no, I'm a better writer now, I'm a better performer, or not even better, but I do things in a different way. If I hadn't evolved and, and, and made 20 different changes in my career all along, I've changed personnel, I've changed lots of different things and approaches, I don't think I would have had um, this every young audience that I have. Well, the weird thing about Stern, and you know, I talked to David Letterman for my piece as well, is the things that made them most popular, David Letterman got popular by being anti-authority, you know, really abrasive, really abusive even sometimes. His interviews with Madonna and Cher, they would be uh, classic and entertaining, but they were uncomfortable. And yet, if you talk to the David Letterman of today, he's a completely changed man. He will say that to you. And I would say the same thing about Howard Stern to the point that right now with this book of interviews that he has coming out, many of his longtime fans are really complaining and saying, God, I miss the other guy. Who is this jerk? You know, they really don't like it. If I'm like the Rolling Stones just playing my greatest hits, yes, that's satisfying, but I become an oldies act. You know, I don't want to be that. I want to be relevant. So when I look back at Private Parts, or I look back at the book Miss America or, or anything I did, it was like a snapshot in time for me. And it doesn't look like me now at all. So I cringe. A lot of the reason why Howard Stern was so popular and, and 
people loved watching him was because of the way that he treated celebrities and the way that he would ask questions to intentionally make them uncomfortable or to make fun of them um, or honestly, like, be mean to them. What was what, what were the reactions from celebrities who found themselves on his show? You know, I've listened to old interviews and it's really interesting because a couple things happen. Rarely does anyone who he's dealing with in the 80s celebrity, for example, and he didn't get a lot of them on there, but rarely did they engage in a real conversation. So you hear Eddie Murphy going on there in like 1983. And as soon as Howard goes into his Howard routine, Eddie Murphy basically shuts up. There are a few chuckles, there are a few comments, but he basically doesn't say anything. Anything you want to talk about, Eddie? Nah. No? <laughs> Just tell everyone to go to Crazy Eddie? Let's go to this record store. <laughs> you enjoying the radio, huh? I thought I was a good interview. I thought I'd draw the guy out, but I can't. But that's okay. I, I admit it. I can't draw the guy out, but oh, that's well. cool. As a reporter, I once learned the shorter question you ask, the longer answer you get. And I don't think anyone told Howard that in the 80s. So when he would get nervous or something wasn't going well, he would just keep going and keep pushing it. I loved him, and he was on our show, and then... I think I'd stopped listening to him because you just never knew when he was uh, going to say something about you that might hurt your feelings. And now I know that I am guilty of that behavior myself. He would try to appease him by participating in things that he didn't want to do, like he was in private parts of the movie when Letterman didn't want to do that. He agreed to be interviewed for some radio documentary for, for Stern. He, he kept doing it thinking maybe Stern would, would, would lay up on him. And he wouldn't. Over the years, he continued. He said some un unpleasant things about my wife and uh, just various little things. And I just thought, well, this is, wh what did I do to this guy? And as far as I knew, the answer was, you know, we used to put him on the show. And I didn't really, you know, the, Howard was the last guy you wanted to menace. Terrestrial radio is set up that in order to be successful, to, in order to be a powerhouse on the radio, in my mind, and have a number one morning show all across the country, it really only had to be about me. Could only be about me. My perception was, if Eddie Murphy walks in, forget, or Robin Williams or anybody, I got to be a raving lunatic. I got to keep dragging you in and sucking you into quarter hour maintenance. You know, I talk about average quarter hour maintenance. Dragging you across quarter hours, that's how you get an audience. Ratings are taken two ways. One is how many people are listening, but more importantly, how long are they listening? And my average quarter hour maintenance has been unrivaled in radio history. I can keep people listening a long time, but I was convinced the only way to do that was to, who gave a shit that Robin Williams was there? I couldn't allow him to participate. There was no room for him because I was convinced I was the only one that could keep my audience entertained. So when did things start to change for Howard Stern? Stern places his, you know, this transformation in about 1999 when his marriage to Allison, who had been uh, almost like a character on the show and that she was so normal. But Allison Stern, after 23 years, they were separated. They had three daughters. And uh, suddenly this guy who had actually remained faithful, despite all of his like, you know, kind of dirty talk. I think he found himself adrift. He was trying to date people. He was trying to live the single life, but he was very, very unhappy and he was very unhappy with himself. And so he started meeting with a therapist four times a week, which is quite intensive, I think. And um, he found that there was a lot that he didn't like about himself. 
you know, I didn't reveal it right away that things were shitty. Um, you know, it's not like I went on the air and go, hey, everybody, my marriage is falling apart. Um, but I knew that in order to maintain, to create a relationship outside of the one that I had with my kids with my wife, I had to form my own relationship with my kids. And if I was going to be ever in a successful relationship again, a successful relationship, I'd have to learn how to be in a relationship. I didn't have any of those tools. I didn't know how to put somebody's needs ahead of mine. I didn't know how to relate to people in the, in the, in the, in the proper way. In a, I'm talking about in a loving relationship. And what I got in therapy was I got lessons in being a man. That was one piece. The other piece is that in 2006, he moved from a regular radio to satellite and all the rules changed. The FCC wasn't watching anymore and the ratings weren't being taken anymore. And suddenly he was, you know, any pressure self-imposed or from the outside was gone. In my studio is uh, Sia. Sia is a, uh, you have a fascinating... To me, one of the great examples of how he's changed is Sia, one of the most successful songwriters of today. But she has this obsession with not being revealed publicly. You know, she wants to hide her face when she performs. Listen to this. This is great to listen. This is Sia putting the song together in her head. (laughs) It's jazzy. The old Howard Stern would have seen a picture of Sia with that wig over her eyes, and he would have mocked her. He would have made fun of her. And that would have been it. I mean, she wouldn't have been on the air. She just would have been, uh, uh, you know, a target for his audience. You and me, like a diamond in the sky. Where did that come it from? It just popped right out. Diamond I have no idea. It was just channeled. Booba B, blah, 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 yeah. diamond in the sky. Yeah, it just came out. Why is it when I go booba B, booba B, it never goes any further? It stays that way. It never goes any further. It never turns into words. That is phenomenal. Isn't it wild? That was surprising to me, too, actually. It was an unusual interview. Most interviews are exactly the same, <laughs> and they don't stand out and they blur into one. But this interview, for some reason, um, it felt like, well, it was the first time I'd sort of had an opportunity to uh, give a voice to, like, uh, my past and what had happened. The new Howard Stern, or the guy who's now going by Howard Stern, he has this really wonderful conversation with her about uh, her songwriting, but also he gets into her very complicated personal history where her father has multiple personalities and was not easy with her. She had a lot of trouble with drinking, but the way he gets into it is really interesting because he doesn't necessarily open the interview by saying, tell me about your drinking. He really opens the interview by talking to her about her, her artistry and what he loves about her songs and quoting lyrics. And uh, it makes her open up to the point she actually starts to cry. You were so low because of uh, your illness that you almost killed yourself. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's why I think of you as the diamond in the sky. Oh. And that you're shining bright now. <laughs> bright? Isn't that it? You're so nice. But you're shining bright like a diamond now. And it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so sweet. I'm crying. <laughs> but, is it, but isn't that the beauty that you didn't kill yourself? I mean, you almost took your own life. I and mean, how, how we would have lost out on this diamond in the sky. <laughs> I can't talk because I'm crying. That's good for ratings. <laughs> That's the Thanks idea. for pulling me back there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that is not what would be going on, uh, on uh, you know, on the Howard Stern show of 1993. It just wouldn't happen. 
truth is, is I've had a, I had a very beautiful experience with him. I felt valued and just genuinely appreciated by him, and it was bizarre because I've just never had um, sort of an, an emotional outburst during an interview. And there have been other interviews like that where people have really opened up in surprising ways and that Howard Stern has shown himself to be a very astute and receptive listener. Well, Gwyneth Paltrow is a great interview because we all have this sense of Gwyneth Paltrow as someone who maybe doesn't have a great sense of humor. And all she has in that interview is a sense of humor, poking fun at herself and, you know, the terms conscious uncoupling and um, really being loose and comfortable with the conversation. The way Bill Murray talks, you know, Bill Murray lives his life as a facade. You know, I mean, he just is not uh, open in any way. And the way he talks in his interview about how hard it is to find a partner and to to find himself, it's really interesting. I just wouldn't have imagined hearing Bill Murray talk in that way. I love every show when you come out and dance. I actually look forward well, to it. Well, you look forward to seeing now, what moves now, he's going to do yeah, today. They're the same moves every but, day. But what's <laughs> weird about it is... I'm trying to break down why I like that. I think it's because I, I expect that you can't dance. You know what I mean? Like Ellen DeGeneres can't dance uh-huh. or would not even want to. Uh-huh. But th- someone told me that you hate dancing at this point, but it's almost as if the audience demands it. <laughs> and you want to stop dancing, well, but you can't. What's well, the truth there? It, it's somewhere in between. You talked to Ellen DeGeneres about her experiences with Howard Stern in the past and how she was scared of him because he was... He was kind of a bully, but she also went on his show recently. And, and what did she say about that experience? She loved going on that show and she hated the show before. I just was always scared of him. I just felt like, you know, he he would turn on me or and I really didn't know much about him, but it wasn't, you know, it was very male uh, centric. It was like that the humor was very aggressive and and I was I was just scared of that humor. I was scared of him and getting hurt by him or slammed by him and he had massive fans and I thought you know he could influence people to not like somebody. But as time passed she heard that he was very supportive of her coming out when she did uh, which like registered with her and that was a while ago but she remembered that. She's good friends with Jimmy Kimmel who's like Howard Stern's best friend and Jimmy Kimmel is a little bit of an entryway drug into the Howard Stern world. I think Jimmy Kimmel says to people look you should meet Howard. And then when she went on there, I think she appreciated that he's a uh, uh, he's smart. He listens. I mean, it's so obvious, but it's so rare to find someone who actually listens to anyone anymore. There's nothing more impressive than a career of, of someone that isn't exactly the same as they were when they were, you know, in their 20s or 30s. And you as you age, you, you know, you you bend and and stretch with, you know, with life and with with maturity. You think about what the Howard Stern of 1985 would think of the guy now? Yeah, I do think about that. But uh, me at this age doing that act, it's creepy. You, You just change because I would assume most human beings evolve and change on a daily basis. Hopefully we we change. I would never want to go back and try to recreate what I did back then. The I have managed to stay relevant, in my mind anyway, and with my 37-year-old average listener, and not become an oldies act, because it constantly has to evolve. It constantly has to change. 
I think that one thing that strikes me is that it seems to me that part of the reason why he was so popular in the 90s was because of his sense of realness, right? That he wasn't afraid to speak his mind or to say all the like crass, rude, impolite things that people don't generally talk about in interview settings. And so it had this feeling of defiant authenticity. But I feel like what is actually real is talking about things that are painful or talking about families and childhoods and being more honest about your own experiences in a way that isn't like funny and crass, but is often just like sad and difficult. And I wonder if part of the reason why he is so much of a better interviewer now is because of his embracing of that sense of what's actually real. I think that's a really good point. It's it's sort of like the point of what is honesty. So in the 90s, he may have thought honesty was coming on the air and talking about how he and his wife had sex last night and then, you know, discussing it in detail. That may have passed for honesty in his mind back then, but it's really not. It's really like inappropriate confession. Now, coming on the air now and talking about how insecure you were and how you sought to 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 become a better human being and what the steps were there that's a kind of honesty that's not the kind of thing that you know gets people to tune in but it is the kind of thing that gets people to think and so yeah i i agree with you i think he's redefined his own sense of what being honest is he thought he was honest back then but what's interesting is He's married again, and um, he's been married for a while, and he will not share details about his relationship with his wife, Beth, in the way that he did about his wife, Allison. And um, he's very specific about that, and also his daughters, his three grown daughters. He will not talk about them uh, the way that he would have in the past. He's very clear about that, uh, because he's determined that these people aren't just props. They're real people. And they need to be treated that way, even if he's on the radio. Jeff Edgers is a culture writer for The Post. And now, one more thing from art critic Sebastian Smee. A sculpture called Rabbit by artist Jeff Koons sold at auction this week. The price? A record-breaking $91.1 million. Well, Jeff Koons is a, a major American artist. He is best known, I guess, for works like the giant puppy that is installed in various locations around the world, as well as for kind of kitschy works, like a, a big sculpture that reproduces a picture of Michael Jackson with his chimpanzee bubbles. <laughs> And in many ways, he feels like a really kind of 80s phenomenon connected with that sort of explosion of wealth that we always think of when we think of the 80s and a certain kind of lack of taste, maybe. I mean, he, he's really embraced kitsch. And we're going to open the bidding here at $40 million. At $40 million, $42 million. At $40 this work, million, Rabbit, just achieved a record price for a living artist at a Christie's auction. It's sold for over $90 million, $91.1 million if you include the fees. And that was a record that broke a, a record that had been set just six months earlier by a David Hockney painting. That one sold for 90.3. So this one just beat that. 
The work was bought by Robert Mnuchin, who's the father of the Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin. Robert Mnuchin has been an art dealer for a long time. So it was actually bought for a client. and We don't yet know who that client was. These works seem to be going up in value. What we're seeing in the art market is that there's a huge increase in demand for these works. Someone said that to buy an artwork for $50 million, you really need to be at least a billionaire. Only 30 years ago, there were only about 100 billionaires around the world. But now there are more like 2,000. Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 